Before getting to the incident in Phoenix Park, let's go back a bit. In 1882, a young 28-year-old Irish woman stepped off the boat from London to Dublin, a journey significantly more uncomfortable and lengthy in the late 19th century than in modern times. This woman wore a cloak and a skirt, likely billowy. She carried on her person a most precious cargo, her unborn child. Seven months pregnant, she strolled through customs without being searched. Perhaps this was due to her impending motherhood. Perhaps just due to blind luck and lax checks. For if she had been searched, hidden by her precious cargo was a substantially more dangerous one. This daring smuggler was Mary Byrne, wife of Frank Byrne, the man who had sent John Walsh to Dublin to set up the Invincibles assassination squad. Upon arrival to Dublin, she would meet with several leading Invincibles and offload her inventory. Insight into some of her cargo would be reported on at a later date. She brought with her a rifle, two revolvers and six knives. She had a rifle with a string around her neck and she had a cloak on. She brought 4,000 rounds of ammunition for the revolvers and rifle in a parcel. On one occasion, she would bring with her some 11-inch surgical knives. These knives, designed to carry out amputations, were earlier bought by a Dr. Hamilton Williams on behalf of Mary's husband, Frank, from Weiss Son on Bond Street, London. Dr. Williams transported these knives to an IRB activist and cobbler in Bethnal Green, and they would make their way to Frank Byrne's room in the Land League office, right in the Palace of Westminster. From there, they would find their way into Mrs. Byrne's luggage, to the hands of the Invincibles, and eventually, the Phoenix Park. In the year of the subsequent trial, 1883, details on the structure and hierarchy of the Invincibles started to be uncovered. While there were reportedly 35 to 40 members of the Invincibles, not to delve into what can at times be an overwhelming and confusing list of names, we'll limit the focus for now to those pertinent to Phoenix Park, the key players if you will, referencing others when it makes sense to do so. The initial four-man committee of Carey, McCaffrey, Curley and Mullet were tasked with recruiting more to the squad, the pool they would fish from being other Fenians and trusted acquaintances, largely lower class. Professor Donald McCracken. Well, first of all, you've got this very, very odd structure of the Invincibles. And, of course, the guys who physically did the deed. And they were an interesting crowd because they weren't criminals. This isn't strictly accurate. Not for everyone. Publican James Mullet was arrested for alleged involvement in the murder of an IRB informer in March 1882, and a reshuffling of members took place, ultimately allowing for the more involved inclusion of a key person in this story, Joseph Brady. Brady was a good-humoured stonecutter, giant in stature despite being only 25 years old and with a shock of black hair. He was second in a large family of 25 children, and lived with his parents on North Ann Street, where since November 2017 can be found a commemorative plaque at number 22. An industrious and hard worker, Brady's strength seemed to lie in his physique and single-mindedness. 
He would later be described as potentially the only one of the group who had any real determination and pluck. He would prove to be a driving force within the Invincibles. I mean, he was a church-going fellow. He was a warden in the Chin Western Row. Um, you know, he, he was a respectable working-class Catholic man. Decent man, as I would say. Um, and, and a dedicated uh, Irish nationalist and, and Irish Republican. Brady wasn't just a church-goer. He was a participant. He sang in a choir at the Franciscan Church in Church Street, alongside fellow recruit and close friend Tim Kelly. In fact, Brady, Kelly and James Carey were all dedicated Catholics and designated alms collectors for their respective churches. Tim Kelly, then only 19 years old, lived with his parents in Redmond's Hill, Dublin. He was an apprentice coachmaker and already a devout Fenian. He's often referred to in the history of the group as being constantly by Brady's side. Clearly very good friends, Brady was nearly always cited in terms of his stockiness, Kelly in terms of his youthfulness. Daniel Curley continued to recruit a large number of men into the group and the Invincibles grew, slowly but steadily. They would use pubs for meetings, sometimes the Bricklayers Club, smart and that they would be hidden among any number of other groups unconnected with any political organisations. Carey, when secretary of the club, could ensure a degree of privacy for their meetings and they would be relatively undisturbed by outsiders. Their professions as working men also ensured they were in regular contact with each other as needed, hidden in plain sight. Nonetheless, contact between them would remain somewhat limited. A common structure within secret societies was implemented in order to mitigate the number of informers. The use of informers is something, you know, that is an anathema in, in, in Irish uh, nationalism, not only Irish republicanism. But there, there, there are many reasons why, why people inform. And there are different types of informing. I mean, it may be a revenge thing, it may be a greed thing, it may be a patriotic thing. The Invincibles, judging by the obvious lack of knowledge of all members' identities that would later emerge, implemented something similar to the Fenian circle system, Michal O'Dwivlin. Well, the great thing about the Fenian system, the, the circle system that it used, was an attempt to stop informers. Um, if you don't have the information, you can't tell. So you had a circle, which might be, say, 12 people. Um, you had a head of the, or a center of the circle. Um, and you had all of these circles all around the place, loads of them, like raindrops in a pond. But then you had above that another circle, which was the heads of the circles. And depending on how many circles you had, how many of the super circles that you had with those heads, because again, they were limited, say, to 12. And you went up until you reached the top. Absolutely nobody would know everybody in the association. At the top, they didn't know everybody in the association. They only knew the people directly beneath them. Who knew the people beneath them? Who knew the people beneath them? In each circle and going out and out and out. And it, that was to protect the, the, the organization. I mean, the obvious problem was that virtually every circle had an informer. So the one person who knew everybody was probably Dublin Castle. With Curley as chairman of the group following Mullet's incarceration, assassination attempts began to be made on Chief Secretary Forster. A key task in the initial months was to watch him, particularly his movements to and from Phoenix Park. The wannabe assassins would need to familiarise themselves with the identities and habits of him and other targets. To assist with this, hiding within the walls of Dublin Castle was Joseph Smith, 
an employee in the Office of Public Works, the OPW. Smith was acquainted with van driver James Fitzharris, aka Skin the Goat. Fitzharris reportedly earned this lasting nickname due to stories of him selling the hide of a pet goat to either pay debts or buy alcohol, possibly both. Another suggests he killed the animal after it ate the straw from his horse's harness. Skin would often drive to and from Dublin Castle, a regular client of his being Inspector John Mallon, and also frequented Wren's pub opposite, now the site of Brogan's pub. Skin and James Carey sought to use Smith's position in the castle to not only allow for the positive identification of targets, but also to monitor their comings and goings. Apart from Skin and Carey, Smith would have no real contact with any other member of the Invincibles organisation, though he would be in the presence of Brady and Curly in Wrens on occasion. Despite the convenience of this mole in the castle, Forster would evade the Invincibles on several occasions, with many failed attempts, born of accidents and incompetence, frustrating the party. The thing about Phoenix Park was, first of all, they tried before and, and failed. This way, it wasn't, it wasn't just uh, that they had this great plan, they executed it and it worked. They'd had several plans, none of which had worked, and it just happened that it worked this time. Um, there were other attacks, um, and then there were attacks that they suspect they suspect that the, that the Invincibles were involved in, um, and probably were. It wasn't just that incident, that there were other attacks. And the histories have tended to skim over that because of the sensation of, of Phoenix Park. Felix Larkin. People who have a conspiratorial frame of mind are not necessarily the most competent people in the world. The fact that you have a plethora of failed attempts shouldn't really surprise us. All they need to do is to get it right once and they make, it, they make an impact in that way. And that's what happens here. Somebody, and I don't know who it is, but somebody has said, speaking from the perspective of security, that in order to make an impact, the terrorist only has to be successful once. From a security perspective, to avoid a terrorist outrage, you have to be successful every single time. That's a relevant consideration here. Security around their targets was not the issue. In fact, it was often lacking. Issues seemed to be related to a certain degree of bad luck and bad planning. On one occasion, Skin the Goat was due to drive his carriage with his easily spotted white horse in front of Forster's as a way of confirming their target's location. However, Skin's horse slipped on the hill and in the ensuing confusion, Forster got away. Invincible Henry Rowles would fail to signal Forster's arrival on another occasion. Perhaps on purpose, some Invincibles later claiming to not be completely on board with the assassination attempts. Other attempts were called off due to the presence of Forster's wife and daughter in the carriage beside him. The group did not want to induce a general outcry at the murder of the Chief Secretary's family, nor to kill him in front of them. But the biggest frustration for the Invincibles was yet to come. On Tuesday the 2nd of May, 1882, DMP Inspector John Mallon was given the warrant issuing the release of Charles Stewart Parnell, John Dillon and hundreds of other internees following the quote-unquote Kilmainham Treaty. Mallon, the same man who arrested Parnell, will be visited in more depth in the next episode as he takes on the main role of Fenian Hunter.
While revelers across Ireland celebrated the release of the prisoners, Forster was livid. On his winter tour of the country, he had resolved not to bend to the violence he had experienced in the regions and that only when the terror stopped and the anarchy ceased would he consider releasing the land leaguers from Kilmainham jail. Conceding to the Irish was an affront with which he would not put up. Forster had left the country on the 19th of April and was now determined not to return. Parnell's released and Foster doesn't agree with this. He thinks it shouldn't have happened. He should have been kept in. So he says, you know, he takes the hump and he says, I'm, re- I'm resigning. And I think possibly to his astonishment, it was accepted. <laughs> and he's gone. Um, and that removed the prime target. This is the one that the Invincibles were set up to take out. The Invincibles were robbed of their chance to kill Forster, not for a lack of trying. While they now turn their focus to their next target, Prime Minister Gladstone sent Lord Frederick Cavendish to replace Forster as Chief Secretary, alongside the new Irish Viceroy, John Spencer. 44-year-old Cavendish was the Prime Minister's nephew through marriage to his niece Lucy. This connection was perhaps advantageous to Cavendish, who was at this point not considered a particular master in the realm of politics not even Gladstone's first choice for the job. Cavendish was the younger son of the Duke of Devonshire. His wife was a niece of Gladstone's wife, and she, in fact, had been orphaned at a relatively young age and had been largely raised in the Gladstone household. So she was almost a surrogate daughter. Cavendish was a fairly innocuous sort of person. I mean, he he was, uh, he had a stammer. an all-round nice guy by those who knew him, but no, 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 no great political weight, um, no great authority about him or anything like that. Cavendish himself was reluctant to take up the post and tried to avoid it. Unsure of himself, he allegedly pointed out that he had no tact, no real knowledge of Ireland, no powers of speaking. He wanted to help but doubted his ability. Lucy wondered if the Irish would call him Buckshot Freddy. Cavendish feared it would be something worse. Nevertheless, he was dispatched speedily to Dublin, unaware that the day he would arrive would be the day the Invincibles would make their move on their new target. Cavendish is now second in command, Castle Undersecretary Thomas Henry Burke. The Irish government was essentially three human beings. It, it was the Lord Lieutenant, It was the chief secretary and it was the undersecretary. And those were the three men that essentially were the government in in Dublin Castle, representatives of Britain in in Ireland. And uh, the the two civil servants, in inverted commas, would have been the chief secretary and the undersecretary. The undersecretary was the man who looked at his portfolio, if we could use the modern term, his portfolio was law and order. Here's a definition of the post of undersecretary according to the 1916 Royal Commission on the Rebellion in Ireland. The Undersecretary is a civil servant residing in Ireland. For practical purposes, he can only take action under authority delegated to him by the Chief Secretary. His duty is to report fully and fairly to his Chief all information that he can obtain, to give his advice freely as to what should be done, and then loyally to carry out the instructions of his chief without regard to any personal opinion of his own. So you can imagine that should someone be following this definition to the letter, that a hated and corrupt 
chief secretary such as Forster might also breed a much detested undersecretary too. That is how Burke appeared to many, earning him a spot as a target on the Invincibles list. They saw him as an evil advisor who had imprisoned men and women of his own race and creed, though it's prudent to note that it was the position that earned the target more than the man himself. Burke was born in May 1829 in Tuam, County Galway, one of six sons. His education would take place in multiple countries, including Oscott College near Birmingham, England. Burke was referred to by nationalists as the Castle Rat, a name for Irish Catholics loyal to the British in Dublin Castle. Burke was hated for his support of various crimes acts that were forced on Ireland, extra resentment aimed in his direction for inflicting abuse on his own people. Burke was a Catholic landowning uh, Connacht man. He was sympathetic to home rule, but uh, uh, he was also sympathetic to the landlords and he was identified with um, Foster's policy of coercion. Without hesitation, once Forster departed Ireland, the Invincibles simply switched targets. Joseph Smith inside the castle, assisting them with Burke's identification and daily habits. He was obviously a man of regular habits. He was probably in the habit of walking from the castle to his home in the Phoenix Park, so they knew to wait for him. Waiting for him didn't always satisfy the patience of all Invincibles especially after the failed attempts on Forster. Joe Brady on the 5th of May boldly walked up to the Undersecretary's Lodge in Phoenix Park and inquired as to Burke's whereabouts. Fortunately for Burke, he was not at home at the time. Early on the 6th of May, Burke was attending the welcome reception for the Viceroy Spencer and his new Chief Secretary Cavendish. They arrived by boat, crossing on the night of the 5th. At the port in Kingstown, a crimson cloth-covered gangway was rolled out. A special train was arranged to take the men to Westland Row and a vice-regal procession to the castle. The RIC and DMP were out in force. Crowds lined the streets, enjoying the sun and the parade. While Cavendish travelled in a carriage, Spencer rode ahead on a horse. I mean, he arrives over, he comes in, he's, you know, he's fated, he goes to Dublin Castle, he gets this great meal and this investiture into the position. He goes on a parade around Dublin, everybody sort of, you know, on his way to Dublin Castle, and everybody sort of out, thousands of people out waving and greeting him, all the loyal West Brits out there. Um, but not just the West Brits, I mean, you always hope for change when, when this sort of thing happens. Um, and people hoping if we show loyalty, this guy be nice to us. The Lord Mayor of Dublin at the time was a baker, and as the procession passed Trinity College, a group of students playfully showered him with flour and pieces of bread. Following a swearing-in ceremony at Dublin Castle, Spencer and Cavendish sat down formally with Burke. They discussed the future intention of restoring a level of peace to the country following the revocement of Forster's Coercion Act. Later that evening, the party split up, with plans to reconvene that night for dinner at the Viceregal Lodge in Phoenix Park. It was a hot day in the capital. If you were in the park that day, you'd likely have been enjoying the fair weather, maybe taking in one of the cricket and polo matches that were taking place. You might have been strolling or cycling down the length of Chesterfield Avenue, or searching for the famous herd of fallow deer. 
similar scenes that can be witnessed in the park in present times. Shortly before 6pm, though perhaps not enjoying the weather as much as the public, Inspector Mallon entered the park. Mallon had received word that an informant of his, John Kenny, wished to meet him in an area near the Viceregal Lodge, now Orison Uchtaron, home of the President of Ireland. Mallon made his way to make the meet. He was, it was reported, uncomfortable. New boots were causing him pain. His discomfort was added to when en route he encountered a concerned plainclothes officer, one of a few undercover lawmen keeping an eye out for trouble in the park. The officer had seen some of the men known to the DMP and felt uneasy. He's told by the policeman, <laughs> there's some dangerous guys here. And uh, he says to Mallon, don't go on. Uh, look, I have two guns on me, take, take one gun for your own protection. Exercising caution, Mallon opted to accept the gun after first verifying that the officer had one for himself. He bailed on the meeting with Kenny. Instead, he headed straight to his home just outside the park, placing himself in a safer and more comfortable situation for the evening. His unplanned early departure from the park would create one of the first big what-ifs of the story. For the time being, but not for long, Mallon would have some downtime at home. You know, if he had gone left instead of right, you know, how things would have changed. If he'd gone and had his meeting, would it have changed things? Probably not, because one man on his own can't do anything. And, you know, okay, nowadays you take out your phone, you ring for help and whatever. But what do you do in the middle of the Phoenix Park if you're told there's somebody going to get killed over there? Not a lot, you know. Um, yeah, might be you. <laughs> it might even have been him if he'd gone to the meeting, you see. We just don't know. Maybe he was being enticed to be one of them. Around 7pm, his meeting with Lord Spencer and Cavendish concluded. Burke took his daily walk home through the park. Spencer had left earlier in the evening, and Cavendish not much before Burke. Knowing that Cavendish had elected to stroll through the city and along the river to the park to acquaint himself further with Dublin, Burke hailed a cab at the park gate with the intention of catching up on and joining his new chief secretary. It didn't take long before he spotted Cavendish and dismounted from the cab. The two men were chatting as they walked arm in arm up through the park. Lost in conversation with Cavendish, Burke continued to stride steadily towards his fate. On the grass near the Viceregal Lodge, in front of a thicket of hawthorn trees called the Black Wood, a group of men were sitting on the grass. Joseph Brady, supposedly selected for the task at hand by an intentional trick of the ballot, was among them. Never far away, Tim Kelly kept him company. Also present were Thomas Caffrey, Patrick Delaney and cabman Michael Kavna, sometimes referred to as Miles. Kavna tended to his beloved brown mare. Nearby, in a separate group, had arrived another horse-drawn car driven by Skin the Goat with passengers James Carey, Joe Smith and Joe Hanlon. Others, including Daniel Curley, apparently made their own way to the rendezvous. Time passes. Joseph Smith, on the lookout, is the first to catch sight of the two men approaching. He turns to Carey and identifies Burke. Carey, in turn, passes the information on to Curley and Brady, telling them to mine the man in grey. Burke was marked. Smith and Carey now exit the park, their role for the evening complete. It's almost 7.20. Burke and Cavendish continue their stroll, now likely aware of 
but unflummoxed by the seven men advancing in their direction, split into three groups. The first group, and don't worry about memorising names, consists of Curly, Michael Fagan and Joe Hanlon, armed with revolvers. They walk past the chatting men. Next comes Brady and Kelly. Delaney and Caffrey bring up the rear. As Brady and Kelly reach Burke, a cab rattles by, distracting them momentarily and risking another failed attempt. But failure would not be an option for Brady today. Now behind his target, Brady spins around and launches at Burke, the 11-inch surgical blade in hand. Brady plunges the blade into Burke's back with a force that drives it deep through his ribs and into his heart. As he attacks, Brady screams something to the effect of you villain at Burke. Burke, even as he must be dying on his fall to the ground, tries in vain to ward off his aggressor. Brady towers over him, leans in and continues to stab at his neck and his chest. Cavendish is in no state to intervene, though he does try. Tim Kelly is upon him. Kelly stabs Cavendish with the other surgical blade, the impact on Cavendish's right shoulder piercing through to his second rib. Cavendish attempts to flee, making it out onto the roadway where he falls to his knees. He raises his left arm to defend himself from the attack, and the force of the next cut nearly severs it from him completely. The final two stabs will eventually finish him off. Just feet away, Brady bends over Burke, ensuring his task is complete by running his blade across the downed man's throat. Job done, the Invincibles leap into Michael Kavanagh's waiting car, pausing only briefly to pick up Brady's revolver as it slips from his pocket and take off. Relaxing his sore feet by the front window of his house on the North Circular Road, Inspector Mallon is distracted by a disturbance outside. Glancing up, he is just in time to spot his informant, John Kenny, barreling down the road, away from the park in a panic. An officer from the park would soon come knocking. Mallon had, unbeknownst to him, been just a 20-minute walk from the most serious political assassination in Irish history. As those responsible continued to disperse quickly from the scene, the only thing Mallon could now do was find them. In the next episode, the investigation begins. The Invincibles Park Assassins is written and produced by Roisin Jones. Narration by Jason Coburn and Mariana O'Rourke. Music for the series is composed by John Kelleher. Our guest historians are Michal O'Dwivlin, Felix Larkin, and Donald McCracken. Actors in this episode are Oshin DeLonga, Maeve De Brune. Artwork for the series is by Tonya King and can be viewed on Facebook and Instagram forward slash The Invincibles Podcast and Twitter forward slash Park Assassins. Follow us for special extras and future updates. <laughs>